Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. Chapter 3. Alan Bridgman ran out onto the landing zone, followed by Bilting. He fired a red over green recognition signal for the gliders, and glancing sharply to the southern edge of the field, he was in time to see Corporal Marsden, the second in command of Leyland's section, raise himself from the fold in the ground and strike the brassard on the first smoke canister. At once an oily yellow cloud drifted heavily away in the light air. As he ran back to the wood, he looked up over the trees to where the Dakotas roared 500 feet above Ramsden's dropping zone. The first three men fell away from the leading plane, and at once, as if it were a signal for the remainder, the sky became suddenly filled with the falling bodies of nearly 2,000 men. The first parachute brigade, who were to lead the assault on the Arnhem Bridges, had arrived. Back in the wood, Alan looked out onto his landing zone. Gliders were banking steeply, and one had already landed. His pathfinding role for the first day was over. There was nothing further he could do to ensure the gliders landed in the correct place. In the moments before landing, they reminded him of swans, beautiful in flight but clumsy and awkward in the last seconds before a touchdown. The air in front of him was thickening as the gliders swept into land. Two nearly collided, and swinging away, one of them failed to line up before touching down. It ploughed its way forward for twenty yards, one wheel still in the air, the other almost buried in the soft soil, and then the undercarriage collapsed, pitching it over onto one wing. The wing held for a moment till the weight of the giant glider proved too much for it, and it disintegrated under the pressure. The landing zone was filling up fast, and the crashes became more numerous. Alan watched each crash until the pilots jumped or crawled out and opened the nose of their gliders to release the men and heavier equipment inside. He heard an increase in the movement behind him and looked around. The wood appeared to be full of parachute troops advancing towards him in their camouflage smocks. He recognised the leading figure and went to meet him. The last time he had seen Peter Ditch had been on Catania Plain in Sicily. Then the objective had been another bridge, one over the Cimeto River, which barred the way to the 8th Army's advance to Mount Etna in the north. Major Peter Ditch was one of the best-known figures in a division plentifully supplied with striking characters. Although commanding a company, he always seemed to be carrying his battalion's reserve of grenades and small arms hung about his slight body. He stuttered, and as he gripped Bridgman's hand, said, I c- c- keep expecting to see b- b- bloody umpires. It's like a s- stuffing exercise. Oh, have you c- c- killed them all? Before Alan could reply, young Adams panted up. The excitement of carrying his first message in battle and the presence of a major from the 1st Brigade was too much for him. He attempted to salute with his rifle still held in his right hand, and realising too late what he was doing, he froze with the rifle extended above his shoulder. The officers laughed, and for the first time that day, Adams's face showed some colour. Please, sir, one of the gliders is on fire. No one seems to have got out. Sergeant Leyland says, may he take the section to help? Bridgman, Bilting and Adams ran to where Leyland stood, waiting at the edge of the wood, his men behind him. There was no need for him to point out the burning glider. Alan stopped for a moment undecided. 
This was the only type of situation he had encountered in war in which he was unable to make an immediate decision. There was no doubt in his mind that, regardless of the limits of responsibility, he would and should give assistance to the men in the burning glider. Should he send it or take it? His place was at his headquarters or with the bulk of his troops. Leyland was quite capable of dealing with a burning glider, but there might be a way out for the men inside that he wouldn't think of. Alan pushed his primary responsibility to the back of his mind and calling to the section to follow him, he ran out onto the landing zone. One man had been thrown half through the fuselage, midway down the length of the glider. The lower part of his body was out of sight. He hung outwards from the hips, his spine bowed back. One moment his arms were flung out as if he were crucified against the thickening air. The next they were plucking at his middle, while all the time he screamed over and over again. Oh Christ, oh Christ, my stuffing legs. They tore at the side of the glider with their bare hands, but as pieces of the thin fuselage came away, the flames leaped out through the enlarged hole, licking over the hanging man's stomach. Leyland seized Bridgman's arm and shouted in his ear. We've got one of the pilots out the front. We can't find the other one. The inside's an inferno. From what I could see from the nose, it looks as if a jeep trailer has turned over and trapped his legs. Leyland paused and took a deep breath before shouting again. You're not going to get him out. Under the threat of the flames, they had stopped trying to enlarge the hole, and instead, as many as could get near him, had taken a grip on his arms and body and were heaving in an effort to break the grip of whatever held his legs trapped inside the glider. Alan looked down at the soldier's face. He had fainted. He shouted to the men to let go their hold and stand back, and he fumbled in his smock where he had put the dead Matthew's identity disc and morphia hypodermic. As he broke the seal and screwed on the needle, he called to Leyland to open the soldier's smock. The sergeant took one look at the needle in the lieutenant's hand, then swiftly unzipped the trapped man's smock. His battle dress blouse was torn open and his shirt and vest ripped down, even as Bridgman leaned forward, the needle in his hand. He paused for a moment, his head down, the round steel jumping helmet protecting him a little from the heat. The fifth rib, and it wasn't on the left, it was nearly in the centre, he counted quickly with the fingers of his left hand. Five. He plunged the needle in as far as it would go and squeezed the tin tube dry. Then jumping back, he beat at the camouflage veil round his neck, which had caught fire even as he had injected the morphia into the doomed soldier's heart. The man was still now, his arms flung right back and his fingers nearly touching the ground. Leyland was kneeling, his fingers on the man's pulse, and after a few seconds he looked up at the subaltern and nodded. Before rising and walking away from the burning glider, the sergeant undid the strap on the dead man's wrist and slipped his watch into a smock pocket, also cutting loose the identity disc that hung backwards against the inverted chin. Bridgman moved round to the nose of the glider. In war, the first loot usually comes from your own. It was better that Leyland should have the watch than it be destroyed in the fire or taken by the Germans. At the front of the glider, three of his men were digging frantically in the loose earth. He found himself looking at Adams, and Adams, who had moved beyond the stage of fear for his own personal safety. The slackness of terror had gone from his face, and now the skin was stretched tight against his cheek and jawbones. For him, the past few minutes had contained more horror than the whole of his previous life. It was a real man hanging dead from the burning glider, and he waited now with his mouth dry and his eyes fixed for what fresh horror the digging hands would uncover. They had stopped digging and were struggling to get a grip on something solid, Bridgman could see a patch of khaki and a strip of camouflage smock. They found their grip and heaved. 
For a moment, nothing happened, and then the man's body came free of the earth like a cork from a bottle. Alan saw Sergeant Chevron's on the man's arm and glider pilot's wings on his breast, and then the small group was struggling desperately in the loose dust, the pilot screaming through a mask of blood and dirt, sometimes pausing in the middle of a scream to gulp a lungful of air. His arms and legs thrashed about like those of an epileptic in a fit, and it took four men to pin him to the ground. Brogan, the platoon medical orderly, came panting up. It was impossible to separate the dirt from the mess of raw flesh where the man's nose had been, and Brogan wrapped a big shell dressing over what had been a human face, a face to be caressed and loved by someone. Two men arrived from the field ambulance, which had landed on the landing zone, but they had to strap the pilot down before they could carry him away on the stretcher. The second pilot walked after them, a broken arm tucked into his open smock. Leyland started to lead his section back to the wood, labouring through the loose earth of the Dutch field, which had started off as an ally that cushioned their landings, but which, as the afternoon wore on, now tired their legs and impeded their movement. Adams was the last man, and Bridgman called him back, for he wanted a word with him out of earshot of the rest of the platoon. The boy turned to Allen's call, and now stood with his legs apart, staring back at his platoon commander, twenty yards away from him and making no effort to return his mind working sluggishly, stunned by what he had seen in the few minutes spent round the glider. He had the vivid imagination of a boy, but until now it had operated only in one direction. He could not reconcile his brief baptism of war with how he had imagined it would be. He had daydreamed vaguely of gallant assaults on enemy positions, of assaults which were always successful and in which he always played a prominent and heroic part. Since he joined the unit, Lieutenant Bridgman had become the centrepiece round which these dreams revolved. His mind's eye developed clear pictures of the lieutenant leading the platoon into the attack. It had never occurred to Adams that in the first 20 minutes of action, he would hear casually that Johnny Matthews had been shot through the head and killed, that he would stand dumbly by and watch his platoon commander kill one of their own men, and that Sergeant Leyland, Eric Leyland, who watched over his section like a father, should help him do it. He had not believed it possible that a man could scream as loudly as the glider pilot had screamed, and not in his wildest dreams had he imagined anything to compare with the bloody ruin of the pilot's face. And everyone was talking about how lucky they were, how successful the operation was turning out to be, and how good it was to have the platoon together, and almost intact so soon after landing. What had they expected to happen? What lay ahead of them in the coming days and weeks? He shook his head to clear it. Bridgman was shouting at him to join him. Adam stumbled over to where the lieutenant waited. When he arrived there, he stood looking down at Bridgman's feet, his chest rising and falling, as if he had just completed a forced march. His breath left his mouth in broken jerks like silent sobs, and without warning he began to cry. Shame became something he had forgotten, or was completely irrelevant to the reality of dead and maimed men. His tears blinded him to his surroundings, but he could see clearly a picture that had been building up inside him of Johnny Matthews lying in the grounds of the big house, alone and already forgotten by the others. He did not need to look to his left to be reminded of the death of the man in the glider, of how he had screamed before he fainted, and of how, without hesitation or prayer, Bridgman had killed him. All the tears in the world could not wash the blood and dirt from the terrible face of the pilot they had dragged out from his premature grave. Adams. Bridgman spoke quietly. Look at me and listen to me for a moment. Adams did not want to look at Bridgman, but the discipline instilled in him during his two years in the army made him look up, and as he did so, he brushed the tears from his eyes with the cuff of his smock. 
The action opened the floodgates of his memory and he had to resist a temptation to throw his arms around the officer's waist and bury his head in the security of the older man's chest as he had done as a child when only his father had stood between him and something unpleasant. Yes, sir. His voice was almost a whisper. Looking down at the short, stocky figure holding his rifle in his left hand, as if it was something he had been told to carry but had nothing to do with him personally, Bridgman felt a sudden wave of anger that this boy should be there at all. This boy, who was all of five years younger than himself. He tried to rationalise his anger, to convince himself that it was wrong for one so young and immature to be thrown into battle with so little preparation. But he knew this was not the real reason for his anger. His chief concern was that the young soldier might crack badly at the wrong moment and endanger at least his section, if not the whole platoon. He felt guilty at this lack of humanity in himself and forced a note of kindness into his voice when he spoke again. Look, Adams, you're going to see some bloody awful things during the next few weeks. Things a lot worse than that. He jerked his head towards the smouldering glider. In Sicily, part of the dropping zone was on fire as we landed, and hundreds of men were dropped miles from the objective, some of them the wrong side of Mount Etna. We've been very lucky today, and I hope it lasts. But even if it does, it won't be as easy as this all the time. He paused to see if he had made any impression on the young soldier, but although Adams had stopped crying, it was difficult to tell from his face what he was thinking. Now, come along with me and buck up. There's nothing glorious about war except the men in it. Try to see it as a dirty, rotten job that's got to be done, and the better we do our part of it, the sooner it will be over. He patted Adams awkwardly on the shoulder, and turning away, made for the wood, threading his way through the great mass of gliders. He looked back once to see Adams following him and wiping his face with the yellow triangular recognition signal that hung round his neck. When he arrived back at his headquarters, Sergeant Nash told him of Gorman's brief action against a small group of Germans who had not attacked him, but were trying to get away. There was also a message from the CO, who had wirelessed through that, according to plan, Gliderborne Infantry of the Air Landing Brigade was moving into defensive positions round the dropping and landing zones to secure them for the second drop on the following day. Bridgman would be told when they were in position, but until then his platoon was to remain where it was. Major Ditch's company had now moved out to join its battalion in the advance towards Arnhem and the bridges, and the wood was strangely quiet. Out on the landing zones, parties of men from the field ambulance were at their work recovering the injured. Occasional firing came from the northeast. None of it lasted very long, and Allen guessed that the 1st Brigade was brushing aside light resistance on its three-axis advance. He strolled through the narrow wood and joined Philip Ramston in the opposite corner. As he left his own headquarters, he had heard Nash issuing orders for a brew-up, but Ramsden's platoon was already drinking. Looking out onto Ramsden's dropping zone, carpeted with 2,000 collapsed parachutes, he realised even more fully than before just how successful the initial landings had been. Ramsden's platoon sergeant passed him a mess tin of tea, and the three of them sat down on a fallen log. At first they joked a little, but then relapsed into silence. Then Ramsden said, I feel like Damocles, but I can't see the sword or the thread. Here we are, in the midst of prosperity, and all of us convinced there's something phony about it. No operation goes as well as this. Perhaps intelligence are right for the first time in their lives. The platoon sergeant was a cynic. After all, the astrologers do turn up trumps now and again, and if you make enough prophecies, you're bound to be right every once in a while. 
Alan sipped his tea. It was possible that the entire operation might go according to plan, that they would really encounter only line-of-communication troops in the early stages, that these would be swept aside, the bridges seized, and the town of Arnhem consolidated and held by their three brigades, plus the Polish Parachute Brigade under Major General Sosobowski, which was to land as a third lift south of the river. There was even a plan for the 52nd Lowland Division to land at a later date in transport aircraft at Dielen Airfield to the north. It all sounded very good, and had started very well. Alan drank the last of his tea and stood up. Well, they say General Horrocks will be here with 30 Corps within 48 hours. Let's hope he is. As he started to walk back to his own platoon, the sergeant called after him. I shouldn't take too much notice of that guff, sir. Monty said he'd be at the Primasoli by noon the following day, but I don't remember seeing him or the 8th Army till the day after that. I'll be happy if 2nd Army's only one day late. Back in his headquarters, Allen decided that with 1st Brigade troops approaching the village of Oosterbeek and Gliderborn infantry east of the big house, it was no longer necessary for Blake's section to remain in its area. He sent Bilting to recall them. When they arrived, Allen pulled them into the headquarter area while they made their own brew up and sent another man to collect Leyland. He now had three quarters of his platoon under his hand and Gorman's section lay directly on their route to the company RV. He could be picked up when they moved to the north. With sentries well posted, they relaxed for the first time since landing. When Bob Blake had come into the wood, his step had been jaunty and a grin, which was as much part of him as his head, had been spread across his face. His first remark had been typical. Just what I expected to find, the whole bloody platoon sitting in their asses, swilling tea while poor old five section does the dirty work. Bridgman returned the sergeant's grin. He liked Blake. He thought he had a correct attitude to war. It was not the same as his own, but he thought that Blake had the best emotional balance in the company. He was never dismayed, never lost his temper, and carried out all orders with a cheerfulness that made others ashamed of their irritability. All Blake's actions were natural. What Leyland did consciously and conscientiously, Blake did as a matter of course. He performed nothing because it was a duty, but simply because to him it was the obvious and right thing to do. He had not Leyland's keen and far-reaching intelligence, but in a junior commander, this could be an advantage. Blake and Leyland were great friends, and yet they had hardly a thing in common. Leyland was short and dark, his face reserved and secretively handsome. He was always in control of himself, but Alan guessed at tenseness, hidden under the section commander's calm surface. Beneath his almost paternal attitude to the men, Leyland was a warrior. Blake, on the other hand, jollied his men along and was as near being their friend as his rank would allow. In civilian life, he was a skilled artisan and he tackled his job in the army with the same casual mastery which he had shown in following his trade before the war. He was taller than Leyland, heavier built and very fair of skin and hair. He had a broken nose and this somehow combined with his permanent grin to make him immediately popular and accepted wherever he went. Blake had occupied his time well while in the area of the house. He had buried Matthews and marked his grave, and he had brought back with him a pillowcase full of rye bread and fruit. The German warrant officer had died soon after Allen and Bilting had left, and Blake had removed the core flashes from the three Germans' tunics for identification by intelligence. Allen looked round at the familiar faces of his men. They seemed relaxed, They had been highly trained in specific roles and now they unconsciously exuded the general satisfaction of those who know that no matter what might go wrong in the future, they at least had carried out to perfection the first part of their most important role. The afternoon wore on 
and shortly after 1700 hours, Major Jordan issued orders over the 42 set for the company to close on its RV. The platoon moved off, picking up Gorman and his section from where they lay facing the railway line connecting Arnhem and Amsterdam and passing the enemy soldiers killed by the sergeant and his men. The Germans had not deliberately attacked the section, concealed in the north of the wood, but had run into them as they sought an escape from the fire of Major Jordan's headquarters and Gordon Brown's number 3 platoon on the landing zone north of the railway. They crossed the railway line west of Wolfhazer and turning to the northeast passed a company of the 2nd Battalion, the South Staffordshire's. Coming into the company area, they were greeted by Jordan and Allen gave him a brief resume of his platoon's activities during the afternoon. Jordan had not been inactive on his own landing zone. There, they had captured a number of LFC troops and brought in part of the 1st Air Landing Brigade successfully. Jordan's spoils of war included a German staff car and a Dutch horse and cart. He had magnanimously given the staff car to Divisional HQ. He explained... No bloody good to me at this stage. And anyway, I thought if I gave them that, they'd keep their covetous hands off the horse and cart. Just look what we can get on it. He pointed to where the horse plodded its way towards the company's HQ. The broad, flat bottom of the cart was covered with boxed ammunition, and at one end, Alan spotted two German MG42s. He knew Sergeant Blake had the Spandau captured at the big house, but very little ammunition for it, and made a mental note to win one of the boxes he could see beside the German guns. He sighted his section positions and then, leaving his men digging in under Nash, made his way to Jordan's HQ to attend the O group that had been called. But before joining the other officers, he whispered to Bilting and even as he greeted Gordon Brown, he saw his batman idling his way to where the horse was being unharnessed. A thousand rounds of German machine gun ammunition were as good as in his hands. Tim Jordan looked round at the faces of the five officers who had come together to form his order group. With the exception of Alan Bridgman, they all seemed cheerful and on top of the world. They knew they had done a good job and they were justifiably pleased with themselves. The CO gave them the situation as he knew it. The landings have gone off splendidly, he said. The 1st Brigade are moving into Arnhem on their pre-arranged routes and the Air Landing Brigade is in position round the dropping and landing zones. He looked up from the map on which he had been pointing out the movements of the battalions and watched the eager faces about him as he continued. Unfortunately, there have been two rather serious snags. In the first place, most of the gliders carrying the vehicles for the recce squadron have not arrived, and this means that the expected lightning strike against the main bridge is out. The para-battalions are going it alone. The second bugbear is that the long-range wireless sets beaming back to Second Army are not functioning properly. But what's far worse is that our internal communications appear to have gone to hell. The General doesn't seem to be able to contact 1st Brigade HQ or any of its battalions. He's on his way now to join them somewhere below Oosterbeek. The CO looked down at his map while his officers digested the first bad news they had heard since landing. He was thinking about the general's move up to the four battalions. Jordan held strong views about the duties of commanders in the field, believing that their place was where they could exercise most control, and that place was not normally in the front line. The conversation became general, and many of the suggestions and suppositions were humorous. Collectively, his officers did not appear unduly concerned by what they obviously considered to be minor mishaps. The CO dismissed them after giving them instructions for their night in lager, but as they moved away, still talking amongst themselves, he called Bridgman back. The Major wondered what was going on behind the earnest high cheekbone face and wide brow. They could both hear firing down towards the river in Oosterbeek and farther up to the north of Johanno Hoeva and west of Lichtenbeek. What is it, Alan? 
Don't you feel happy about the operation? He waited while Bridgman marshalled his thoughts. Alan always moved quickly, and the CO knew his mind worked as fast as his body, but he had been grown used to the way in which the lieutenant considered his choice of words, and so was surprised at the vehemence when he replied. I think the whole operation, as it's been concluded, is wrong, sir. I've thought so since the very beginning. Somewhere between ourselves and the CRGS, there's a victory-happy group who have succeeded in getting out of touch with reality. An airborne operation in a European country in which the attacking troops have dropped eight miles from their objectives is farcical. It could only succeed if the ground troops were within easy striking distance or if the German army was so demoralised as to no longer be effective. Second army is 60 miles away. and I don't believe the Jerry's have cracked yet. And now that the recce vehicles aren't here, we've lost the element of surprise their speed would have given us. The whole division should be on the move, heading for the really vital objectives, the bridges. We should be advancing, not only down the main roads, but down every side road and track that leads to them. Of course there'd be some confusion. Of course some of our troops would be fired on by our own men. But by dawn tomorrow, the bulk of the division would be where it's most needed, on and around the bridges. And not sitting on our arses west of Oosterbeek, waiting for the Germans to build up the striking forces they'll throw at us, and between us, tomorrow. He paused for breath, and Jordan looked at him, surprised. But Alan, haven't you forgotten that nearly half the division isn't here yet and can't arrive until tomorrow? That's one of the things I had in mind when I said the operation was all wrong, sir. If enough aircraft were not available to land the division in one go, then that's all the more reason why we should have accepted the casualties to be expected in a landing closer to the objective and thrown everything we had at the bridges at once. I believe we shall have far more casualties getting to the objective than we should ever have had if we landed on it. Bridgman stopped speaking, his face faintly flushed under his suddenly revealed emotion. Tim Jordan made no reply for a long minute, and when he did speak, his voice was quiet. Alan, you may be right. I'm an old soldier, and although I felt no happier than you about this operation, I've been cheerful and optimistic about it from the beginning, because I could see no point in being otherwise. There's nothing that I, let alone you, could have said that would have altered the plan in any way. Once it was made, I could secure only those alterations which affected our unit directly. Try to look on it as I do. No matter what may happen from now on, we have so far done our job according to the book and we can't be criticised in any way. We'll go on doing that tomorrow and the day after and the day after that until it's all over. No man's shoulders are wide enough to carry the burden of everyone else's responsibility. My intention is that this company shall carry out to the best of its very high ability every task it is given. Just that, and nothing more. Let your only concern be that your platoon does the same. The CO's lined face broke into a grin. Well, we are a gloomy pair for a couple of men who have so far done a first-rate job and know it. I think we deserve a drink. He produced a bottle of whiskey, and they toasted future successes with smiles on their faces and their doubts hidden again, even from each other. Bridgman rejoined his platoon. Nash had made all arrangements for the night. Alan approved them, then visited his sections and had a word with their commanders. Then he dropped into the shallow slit trench that Bilting had prepared for him, and with his hands supporting the back of his head, listened to the crunch of falling mortar bombs and the intermittent bursts of machine gun fire which came to him from the east. Once or twice he heard the sound of a bursting 88mm shell. <laughs>